I've learned a lot about healing past trauma by observing people who are trying to change their lives and watching who moves forward and transforms their personalities and their relationships and their material success in the world, and then watching who does not. And I got to meet a lot of people who were working on themselves because I was in 12-step rooms for decades. And I had periods where I was willing to go to any lengths, I was doing all the work, and then I had these other times where I really didn't do it, I couldn't do it, I didn't have it in me, I would shrink from it, and I would just sort of go along and talk the right talk, but you know, just do the least amount of work. In my case, it was usually because I was into some relationship that wasn't really compatible with my healing, is dragging me down, or because I just wanted people to think I had it all together, so I made excuses for the problems I was having. All the conflicts with people, all the financial problems, all the relationship chaos. So if you're not moving forward, I know what that's like. But then I did move forward, and that's what I teach here for anyone who's ready to face the problems honestly and see where they might be resisting what's right, what's in their best interest to make their lives better. So I wanna share with you a list of six excuses that I hear all the time that I've made myself. And excuses, they're like cement shoes, okay? So if you recognize them, you know there's a big opportunity for you to get free and heal and change your life. You don't want these cement shoes anymore, right? Number one, the first one is what I call kicking the can down the road. I first need to do X, then I'll do Y. And it's an artificial sequence, right? Often people will put giant projects between where they are now and where they want their life to be. Like I'll start eating healthy once things stop being so stressful. I'll do it then, it'll get better then. I'll leave this terrible relationship once I get my sanity back. I hear that a lot. That's a really dangerous fallacy. You're actually not gonna get more sane in a terrible relationship. You're gonna get ground down. So it's gonna be much more difficult for you to leave the longer you stay. You'll often see people sabotaging their goals with some foolish action, something that really sets them back. Like they want to go back to school, but then they go into debt and then they can't afford to go to school. Or they want to get into a relationship, but then they hook up with some crappy ex and get all emotionally like wrecked about it or spend six months kind of, you know, emotionally latched onto this thing that's not going anywhere. They're not going to get into that great relationship they were hoping for, not in that year. The second one is what I call getting on a high horse, you know, where, where you're thinking, you know what, I'm not like all those shallow normies, like I have to suffer. And you get this like with, I'm an artist, or I can't be expected to work full time, or I can't really care for my responsibilities because I'm just so, you know, hurt or so creative. It's a superiority over other things. High horses, nobody likes them and they don't help you solve your trauma. The third one is, the straw man. Do you know what a straw man is? It's like this artificial entity where you can put all the blame and you go, well, I can't change because they, you know, this situation is completely holding me back. But it's kind of a fake thing, right? Or it's something where you're sort of constructing it as this big obstacle, but the obstacle may not be as big as you think. So this would be something like, you know, the problem is with the system. It's rigged against people like me. Um, it's capitalism, it's patriarchy, it's the diet culture. People are idiots that they have this religion or this political view and so on. 
But staying stuck and blaming it entirely on outside entities and people is, it's an excuse. It's an excuse to not change. And it'd be so great if you could honestly say that change was impossible because of this issue or that the group of people make it impossible for you because then they all you have to do is get them to change and you'd be fine. But that's not how it is. A, they're not going to change. And B, even if they did, you would still have your sort of trauma symptoms. You'd still have the things inside that are limiting you. So you might not ever be rich. You might not ever have a career of your dreams. But I guarantee you, if you can face and work on what is holding you back in here and in here, you can change. People can make positive transformations under all kinds of circumstances. They do that when they're poor. They do it when they're incarcerated. They do it when they have to live in hiding. Yes, there are huge obstacles and disadvantages and life is not fair. But every person, including you, is capable of great things based on where you are right now. For each of us, the job is finding how in the environment in which we find ourselves, with the strengths and the weaknesses that we have, with the cards we've been dealt, what can we strive for? Can we move forward? Because we can. We can blossom despite everything. All right, the fourth one I call collapsing. This, I give up. I can't do things like this job or this conversation or this obligation or this relationship where I promised someone I'd help them, but now I'm tired. Tiredness is a huge form of collapse. And as you know, tiredness has a lot to do with choices that you make. And yes, I know some people have health conditions, chronic fatigue or cancer or long COVID or even worse things. And that's another story, right? That's not what I'm talking about. Even when you have illnesses like that, it still requires taking care of yourself and maximizing your energy to the best of your ability. So there's no scenario where people with CPTSD really can get away with trashing their bodies and sacrificing their energy and their motivation. It hits us harder than people who didn't have huge trauma. We can prevent a lot of the health risks that are correlated with trauma, but it means really, really taking care of ourselves. Sleep, healthy food, and exercise. Those are the basic building blocks. If you're doing those things, you don't have to be perfect, but if you can do them at 80%, wow, then you can get to work on the emotional reasons that you sometimes collapse. When you have that together, you can start to look at the outside reasons you sometimes collapse. But it's got to start in here. People who are quite ground down inside are not in a good position to change the world or change other people or make things better. It starts here. So maybe you were trying to put yourself out there and it brought up a lot of fear. Or maybe you're really vulnerable to criticism and you don't have the kind of friends who help you keep criticism in perspective. You know, it's cool. It's just one person. It's okay. I get that. Maybe you let problems pile up and pile up and it's too hard to face the mountain of problems. But there's a way forward and it's, it's not through escaping into substances or the internet or anger or isolation. It's a day-by-day -day process of showing up, doing the good things that keep you feeling okay, doing the work to keep a community of supportive people around you. I know it's easier said than done, but it's doable. And using the tools that help you do all that one day at a time, 12-step groups. Um, you can use my daily practice. It's a free technique set of techniques. Save my life. I teach it to everybody. It's a free course. It's down in the description section under every video I make. It's in the on the free tools page of my website. Please go find it. Check it out. You can come to free calls with me once you've signed up. We do the techniques together. I answer questions. It's a great way we can meet each other. You can also join my membership if you want. But 
If you're trying to change these behaviors where you're making excuses for changing your life, these are the areas where you might be getting bogged down. Okay, the next one is magical thinking. This is where you decide to believe that some bad situation you've created in your life, it's just happening to you. Bad things do just happen sometimes, but I'm talking about the things you actually chose, which becomes especially clear if the same bad thing happens again and again. Have you been there? I have. The abusive work environment, the emotionally avoidant partner, for example. Your trauma may be driving you to these patterns, but the pattern isn't going to change until you change it. So try to notice if you're making excuses for your patterns. What you hear people saying is, um, I'm just unlucky or I'm cursed. I used to say that. I really thought it too. I'm like, I'm cursed. You know, everything I touch just turns to crap. I saw later it was me. <laughs> or you believe that the problem is that you attract people who hurt you, you know, narcissists, manipulative people. The problem isn't actually who is attracted to you, it's who you are attracted to. It's who you let into your life, who you get into a relationship with. When you can't detect who somebody is or you get in so fast that you don't realize till too late what they're like, that was you, that was you, okay? And you take your power back when you admit, I keep being attracted to narcissists versus they just find me. I don't know why. All right. The next one is what I call fatalism. Fatalism is when you believe that something has to be that way. It's inevitable. And in traumatized people, it shows up as my parents abandoned me. So I always end up with people who abandon me. And yes, it's absolutely true that the pattern of childhood tends to show up as your pattern in adult relationships tends to, but you can change that. It's not inevitable. It's, it's actually when you have perspective on it and you've been working on it, you can see every time where you ignored the red flag and you walked right in anyway. There is, there's this little moment where you can change how you do that. You actually have the power to do that. So watch out when you explain your problems this way, as if there's a direct cause and effect that you play no role in. My parents made me like this. I'm like this. I'm a highly sensitive person. I'm an empath. And even calling yourself an adult child of an alcoholic, all of that, the labeling of yourself. It's just a way of sort of um, giving up on all your potential to be different, to be not so affected by what happened to you as you are right now. You have that potential. You're a fully feeling, fully capable human being. You're working to heal the effects of the past and become yourself. What happened to you is not your identity. When you keep focusing on that identity, those abusive events or the neglect, it's a distraction. You know, believing that is distracting you. It's a coping mechanism that's making it so you don't have to focus on the problems right in front of you. The way you might be isolating and avoiding your own life. The way you might not be taking responsibility or you're pushing people away with emotions you haven't yet learned to regulate. Or you're living as if somebody is somehow coming to save you. That's really common. You need to save you. I know it's sad, but it's true. You need to save you. And you can do that by facing the problems and looking for the parts of those problems where your own trauma-driven thinking or dysfunctional choices have played a part. You can focus on those, not because you're bad, but because this is the only part of life where you really do have power in yourself in present time.
Okay, the last big excuse, it's really a whole category of excuses, and it's what's known as spiritual bypass. And the people who do this are sometimes religious, they're sometimes spiritual, sometimes they're against religion and spirituality, or their ideology is a religion. You know, it could be like a political belief, but they get so locked in that they cannot see reality. And this is stuff like, I'm exactly where I need to be right now. It's, or it's all good. Or if it's meant to be, it'll happen. Or God doesn't give you more than you can handle. I particularly hate that one because I've lost people to suicide. So it's just patently true. Well, I don't think God gives you those circumstances, but people frequently end up with things they can't handle. That happens. So I consider that a spiritual bypass. A lot of spiritual bypass, what it really is, is encouraging words that are meant to lift you up and keep you going when things are tough, but they can be used to pretend that you have no agency. They can be used to just make an excuse. I just can't do anything about this. Any belief system can be used by you or people who want to exploit you to put up with crap. So doctors who tell you your trauma symptoms are all imagined, that's a belief system of theirs. Therapists who tell you that the fact you're still miserable after two years is because you just need to feel your feelings or grieve or whatever. And you're like, I don't know, I've been crying every day for years. That's a spiritual bypass. That's not dealing with the reality of the situation. You need and deserve to feel happier, to feel more ease and comfort right now. So don't BS around with other people's excuses and don't make your own. Healing is possible when you can recognize your own symptoms and then work on ways to soften them. When you can recognize your own self-defeating behaviors and work on ways to change them. You don't have to do it all at once. Sometimes you just pick the one that's causing the most problems for you and start there. To be demoralized means to be deflated of all that makes you strong, to have too many bad and discouraging things happen to you until you lose your mental clarity, you lose your drive to bring good into the world, you definitely get disempowered, but it takes that disempowerment one terrible step further to where you lose your awareness or valuing of what is good. When you're demoralized, you turn away from what is good and true and morally right. You don't even know what good is anymore. You can't detect what is right or what's important. And when you're demoralized, you believe that good is, you know, whatever I want it to be, whatever everybody says. And many people will tell you that this is the case, that it's totally subjective and it's rude to assume you know wrong from right. But if you really believe this, that what is good is unknowable, or that seeking what is good is rude, then everything becomes meaningless and pointless. No wonder we get demoralized. Now, when we're in that state, it's almost impossible to imagine that anything we do can make a difference. Has this happened to you? Trauma can definitely do that to a person. And if that's where you are right now, it is so important that you start healing it. Now, in my work, helping people heal from past trauma, one thing that's really painful to see is how many people have completely written off any possibility that healing is possible. And I see this in the YouTube comments mixed in with everything else. It's too late for me. Or what about if nobody cares about you and nobody ever helped you? Or things like anyone who was traumatized just becomes a target for narcissists. So it's best to just avoid people because people suck. These are the things that people say when they're demoralized. 
their belief that good exists in the world and within them, that good can come into their lives and change their experiences and their circumstances, it's been shut down. And you can hear by the cynicism and the scolding tone of this kind of comment that it's painful for them to hear messages of hope. They come to the channel, they watch a video, which is a hopeful act, by the way, but something snaps shut and won't allow them to apply it to themselves. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy, really. If you can't let help in, healing gets a lot harder. And that's why demoralization is really what we're healing when we're working to heal trauma. We're reactivating that instinctive and universal connection to what is true and good. We could debate what is true and struggle to know truth, but truth is truth, whether we've figured it out or not. It doesn't change depending on what mood you're in. We know there's evil in the world. We know there's good. And mostly people are good. Now, whatever you read online or you see in the news, mostly people spend their days cooperating with each other, helping each other, doing work that's mostly to serve the cause of good. And yes, there are exceptions. And when you're demoralized, your mind tells you that the exceptions prove that the rule that, you know, most people, including you, are pretty good. Well, it can't be true. That's what your mind tells you in demoralization. That kind of thinking is a hallmark of demoralization. And it can bring the worst out in people. And it can do a lot of damage. Demoralization has happened to people throughout history. They fell into it or they were intentionally manipulated into it. It happens to little communities and it happens to whole countries. And this is very dangerous because when people are demoralized, they're very, very susceptible to a loss of unity. They turn against each other. They're quick to anger. They're full of fear. They're quick to blame and they're easily led. And if hearing this makes you think of other people like that, I'm going to suggest that that's exactly what demoralization wants you to think. It wants you not to look at yourself. It wants you to blame other people by categories or individuals and ignore anything that you can actually change for the better. Demoralization needs you to grow cynical, to turn your back on problems and stop trying. Whole generations have lived through cycles of demoralization and then come through on the other side toward, what can we call it, remoralization the recovery of a lived sense that good is possible and that with our innate goodness, if we work on it, we can make it real in the world. Now, I feel strongly about this in terms of childhood PTSD, that healing can only happen when we fix our eyes on a vision of what is possible and not keep expecting that focus on what happened in the past is going to change anything. Yes, you may need to discuss it or get it acknowledged, but the focus goes on the vision. If you don't have a vision, there's nothing to do but go in circles with your trauma. The solution, the change, comes from focusing on what is holding you back right now. If you grew up traumatized, believe me, life is full of problems. It's part of what trauma does. Now, it's not your fault that you were abused and neglected and bullied as a kid, but sooner or later you realize that no one is coming to fix that for you. Even if you could make all these problems, you know, stop existing in the world. The injury already happened. And so now it's in your hands to begin working on that injury, to change your life from exactly where you are right now. It's a good place to start. Now, some of you will get angry when I say that. You'll unsubscribe, you'll, you know, say terrible things in the comments, you'll shut off the video, and that's okay, because I'll still be here when that 
little glimmer of good shows up in your life and you want to come back. And whether you want it or not, hope is going to appear. Hope is here that maybe things can get better. So this is a powerful and positive sign when you feel hope that even though you may be discouraged and demoralized right now, the truth of you is very much alive and there's a great well of strength in you, a light. And not only is it meant to shine, but it's meant to shine right now. It's shining right now. Can you feel that? That light in you dissolves cynicism. Hopelessness gets diluted by hope. Hope has a way of growing. All right. How? What are you even talking about, Anna? People are going to be like, all right, enough about that. What do I do? What do I do? Your demoralization is like a heavy cloak. All right. Think of it that way. It presses you down. It covers you. It makes everything feel heavy and impossible. It keeps you from knowing that you can actually take it off. Demoralization tends to follow certain patterns. It manifests in a handful of problems, ordinary human weaknesses that can become big problems. They can dominate your life. Things like avoidance, anger, indifference, overwhelm, isolation, escapism, and blame. Demoralization loves more than anything when you blame. And you might recognize some of these things in yourself. And if you're demoralized, you're going to tell me, but I have to be angry. I have to avoid responsibility and blah, blah, blah. And I get it. I totally do. You didn't ask for these problems. You can't just snap your fingers and say some dumb affirmation and make them gone. If you're like I was, you don't even know what to do. You can ask experts and they give you platitudes, but nothing practical. If it's all touchy feely and out of touch with with how rough and how ugly life gets when trauma is active, what is it worth? When I was trying to get help for what was basically life-threatening demoralization, I was instinctively looking for what I did wrong. And the people I asked for help wanted to get me to not look at that. I think they thought I was too vulnerable to face my own responsibility for some of the problems in my life. And I, you know, at, at that point, it was, it was a lot me who was generating the problems, but I was in denial. And I think I was getting helped by some of the people that I was, you know, paying to help me. But I knew nothing would get better until I figured out how to stop basically acting like a bad person. I was pushing everyone away. I mean, the fact was there. And I craved, I craved to know, like, how do I become good? And the person who did help me affirmed that for me. She said I was screwing up and she told me I needed to stop screwing up. And the old fashioned word for this is renounce. Now, if you think this is too judgmental or ancient, you're not demoralized enough yet to, to experience the delicious comfort of the word renounce. I renounce it. I renounce this behavior. I renounce this problem. It's something that you can do even before you even understand, like, why do I even do it? How am I going to do it? It's just like, I do though. I renounce it. I needed to renounce those negative think thoughts and tendencies and behaviors that I was engaged in back then. That was the first thing I had to do. Nothing else could work because my thinking and my actions and my beliefs the way I affected other people was, it was confusing to me because I was demoralized and I was demoralized because of what I was doing. A demoralized mind can't easily see an alternative or come back from demoralization. Something has to show you the alternative. Uh, you, you know, sometimes by grace, it will be shown to you. You will stumble into it and go, you know what? I could be better than this. But sometimes it's just a person. If, if you need me, I'll be the person who suggests to you that you take a look at the signs of demoralization in your life 
and spend some time with them and then decide if you're ready to turn away from them, here's a simple thing you can do. It's called contrary action. You may not know yet exactly where you need to end up, but it's enough to know you want to turn away from what you're doing now and begin to basically do the opposite. Okay, so let's go over those signs I mentioned of demoralization, avoidance, anger, indifference, overwhelm, isolation, escapism, and blame. I'm going to describe them to you and then I will tell you how to turn each one around using contrary actions, the opposite. Now you actually have the power to do that. And yes, everyone has circumstances that are challenging to one degree or the other, big problems, I know, but this is about finding that little light inside, that little ray of hope. And it's about most of all action. And I know a lot about action because for all the thinking and reading and talking that I ever did about my problems, the thing that ever made a difference for me was the actions I took. Now I spent a lot of my life demoralized and what changed was not my circumstances first, it was me who changed, all right? Now, if this bothers you hearing me talk about how I did it when I, you know, instead of like blamey talk or flowery talk or little Instagram wisdom, just straight talk on how to actually like take action to make your life new, then this is not a good video for you. I'll just give you that heads up right now. All right. So let me tell you the signs of demoralization one by one, and then I'll tell you the contrary action, the thing that you can do to remoralize yourself around that problem. Number one, avoidance. This is very popular with people who are traumatized as kids. People are triggering, uh, commitments are triggering, so we end up just pulling away and avoiding it. Your contrary action is to show up, to get clear about what you need to be doing, and people who you need to stay connected with. You also are going to want to stay connected to the actions, just the little tasks in your daily life that keep your life moving. So what is it? Paying a bill, apologizing to someone, returning a phone call, spending a full evening with someone you love without looking at your phone or watching TV. Yeah, <laughs> you can make a list of these things and then prioritize the things that you really need to be taking action on. Make those appointments, follow through on them. Every Sunday night, make a new list. That's what I do, Sunday nights. All right, the second sign of demoralization is anger. Now, I don't have to explain what anger is. It's something that people with complex PTSD often have too much of. It comes out and hurts people. Your contrary action is to release those resentful thoughts that hold your thinking in an iron grip of anger and block you from feeling joy. If you want a way to loosen up your anger, I strongly encourage you to try my daily practice techniques. And um, you may want to write that down for after you finish the video. I will definitely put a link at the end of this video and it's always down in the description section if you want to learn these techniques to free yourself of fearful and resentful thinking. But these techniques are deceptively simple. I've been using them 29 years. They're very powerful to help you face and be rid of angry and anxious thoughts. And when you learn how to move all that stuff out of the way for a while, because they do come back. You just keep doing it. That's why it's a daily practice. You experience a clear and peaceful mind and you are going to want that feeling again. Trust me, it feels good. All right, number three is indifference. This is another sign of demoralization and it's where you get so numb that you don't really care one way or the other what happens. A lot of traumatized people have been heavily criticized in the past, maybe bullied, ostracized, or demeaned in a relationship, dumped. And to survive all that, you learn to just act like, I don't even care. You can't even hurt me. And I get it. In the past, 
You had to do whatever it took to deal with the shame and the disgrace and the loss of people treating you like that, not caring about you. So you bragged about not caring about them or yourself. You know, they were a dick, whatever. This, this may scare you, but any awake person sees right through that. It's a cry of pain to say you don't care. Of course you care. And you don't have to shield yourself from that anymore because it's a lie. You know what I used to shield myself with? Cigarettes. I used to smoke two packs of a day for like 16 years. And I loved how I could just hang a cigarette out of my mouth and frown and go blowing out smoke in a way that told other people, I don't even freaking care. It was like an armor I wore. I was actually really sad. I was really angry and I had no idea what to do with that. Um, that wouldn't just wreck all, everything in my life. Right. Just so I just like, <sighs> and I smoked that anger. God help my lungs. Then I stopped and it took a lot of tries to stop, but I did stop. I have a video about that. I'll try to remember to put that down below if you want to see it. But at first I would stop smoking. I'd start, I'd stop, I'd start. And then one day I had the power to renounce it. All right. I told you we talk about renouncing and I was able to use the contrary action. And in my case, that was to start doing my daily practice techniques twice a day for real without fail. And then the anger and the fear began to leave me. And I couldn't trust it until I knew with certainty that the daily practice would keep working for me, that it would be a reliable way to feel better as needed and not turn out to be some crazy cult thing that just failed like everything else. It took a few years for me to really trust that. And that's when the smoking stopped. It's now been 26 years as I stand here taping this, almost exactly 26 years this month. All right. Number four, overwhelm. This is still one that's hard for me. It's a sign of demoralization. It also leads to demoralization. I think that's probably true of all the signs. They are caused by demoralization and they cause worse demoralization. I'm the queen of overwhelm. It still happens. When I let myself get demoralized, my life, which is full and good and interesting, instantly becomes too much for me and I hate my life and I get mad and I start procrastinating and hyperventilating and dysregulating and I'm no use to anybody. And the contrary action for me is to slow down. I make a list. I like lists. You may not. I do. <laughs> I have a little digital thing called Kanban flow. You know, it's, it's, it's a free app. If it costs money, I'd get a deal where I get kickbacks every time I recommend this to people because I think thousands of people are using it. But it's, it's really simple and you can just make these columns, make little tasks. You can slide them into other columns. You can name the columns. You can color code things. I do that for how long it takes. It's, it's just totally how I handle things. Every morning I just get up and look at my board and I see what I've got and I just love noodling with it. And it's, it's got all these like, you know, nether regions <laughs> off screen. If you were to scroll all the way over, it's like, oh, here's some old stuff I meant to do like two years ago. So one thing that's always on my list is to clean up the board and I never do, but it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It is enough that I keep this area of it clear of what I'm going to do. And in fact, like taping these videos is on it today and it's color coded pink because it was going to take me two and a half hours. I already know that, right? So if you have childhood PTSD, it can feel so good to just take one 
thing at a time. Your brain loves it when you slow down and you do things one thing at a time. You don't have to be methodical all day long. You could just get this way when you get overwhelmed. I don't know, you might wanna do an ounce of prevention, but when you're overwhelmed, just consider it time to slow down and start doing things one thing at a time. That whole multitasking thing, you know, they say, oh, it's a myth that multitasking is possible or good, but I think that's also a myth. It's like sometimes we multitask successfully, sometimes we're too dysregulated and we just need to slow down and just, just be like Mr. Rogers about it. Sit down, take out the shoes, take off the shoes, put on the shoes, tie the laces. It feels good, it's very calming and regulating for your mind. If your CPTSD is shaped kind of like mine, sometimes you get emotionally or mentally overwhelmed when you're hurried, when everyone's talking to you at once, when there's a big deadline coming up or something really exciting happened. When that feeling that you're just <gasps> getting overwhelmed is rising up in you, renounce it. Just say, that's this is overwhelm, I renounce overwhelm. I'm not into it anymore. And allow yourself to pause and have new opportunities, a new way of dealing with it, enter into your imagination. Pause, imagine, just let something new come. You'll get things done faster this way. It's true, try it. All right, five. Another sign of demoralization is isolation. Oh, this is the favorite around here. This is the biggest and most universal trauma symptom. It's a natural response to feeling triggered around people, not trusting yourself. It's a little like avoidance is not doing tasks. Isolation is not doing people, right? And so you can't, if you can't gracefully handle things because your, your CPTSD symptoms get out into the room, then, you know, trauma, it's an injury, right? It's injuring you, it's holding you back. It's an injury to your ability to connect. And so connections feel fraught and not connecting with people. Here's the problem. It can make it impossible to heal. So that instinct might be to pull away from people to deal with all those triggers, but it's only gonna get worse if you stop dealing with people. So the contrary action is to, in a measured way, not like all at once, you don't just throw yourself into the center of the party if this is hard for you, if it's triggering for you, it, it's to connect with people a little at a time every day. And this is a huge part of what I teach and in my connection boot camp. And if it's a big issue for you, you might want to check that course out. I'll be sure there's a link down in the description section for you on that. You need to simultaneously work to calm your triggers and then also work that muscle of connecting with people. So calm yourself, connect, calm, connect, calm, connect. I call it titration, which is from medicine and science. A little at a time, see how you do. A little more, see how you do. All right, number six, another sign of demoralization is escapism. And this is where we try to get away from the pain of our present reality and away from anxiety about what might happen in the future by using fantasies or drugs or booze or running away or quitting things or magical thinking or making up platitudes to justify huge problems like it's all good or monogamy is for losers anyway or he abuses me, but that's because he was so wounded by his mother when he was a kid and he needs me to stand by him. That's magical thinking. When you live demoralized and you've lost touch with the difference between what is good and healthy and what is, what is irresponsible and evil, you can justify just about anything you want. And this is dangerous because not only can it hurt you, it can hurt other people and it will further damage your awareness of good. It, it just chips away and grinds you down, creates the illusion that good is your enemy. You know, you run into people who really think that their thinking is so distorted. 
All right, finally, the ugliest result of demoralization, number seven, is blame. Blame. Demoralization thrives when you don't have the strength to face your own mistakes, and instead you place the blame on other people in your life, even if it takes wild stretches of your imagination to do it. Now, healing has a fighting chance when you take serious time for self-examination, when you question all your problems and ask yourself, which part of this have I created? Now, this is a magic question because in any given problem, you know, there's like some portion that's not your fault at all, but there's some aspect of it, perhaps, that you brought to it that you could change. And this is your magic sweet spot because what you can change is what you can change. You can't change the circumstances necessarily. You can't change other people. You can't change the past, but you can change these decisions you make, the attitude you took, the words you said. You can work on those things. So much of the time that is enough. You change one little thing and the rest of it melts away or they fall away or the people who are like that just leave your life. Now, a lot of people fear looking at their part in problems, but it's actually really safe because it just goes without saying that when it happened, you didn't know any better. There was something going on in you that you couldn't really manage a different choice at that time. And most of your problems, they were created for you by the people who abused you. So that beam of light, that hope that comes when you find a piece of the problem that these days you have the ability to change, this is precious. When I first started doing this, when I first discovered how potent it was to look at my part in problems, I just went wild. I just wanted to blame myself for everything and not out of self-attack, but because it was such a high to go, oh my gosh, I have control over something. I just wanted control over everything, which of course I don't have, you don't have. Now over time, I could see that not everything was my fault, but those that were, were very powerful. I had to only change a little bit about myself before a whole bunch of stuff started changing like a domino effect. That's why it's easier than it seems. Like you look at all your problems at once and you're just like, how will I ever hack through all of these? It's like, just start with one. Start with something that you can change. See what happens. Growing up traumatized breaks your ability to connect with people. It breaks down moral order. It damages your perception, your discernment about your relationships. And in that void, it's easy to be driven by fear and anger and resentment and blame. Everyone pays the price when one of us becomes separated from what's good. So if you're ready to change, to heal your life and become a source of hope for other people, ask yourself, are you ready to take a step up and renounce these negative aspects of yourself? Even if you don't know how to change, you don't know where it's headed, you don't know what it's supposed to look like, just begin and take the first contrary action that you can see in front of you. You can't help but have that lead to a revelation of what your second step is going to be. It's like walking in a fog at first. If you can see one thing, just do it where you are. Don't, you don't have to know the root cause. You don't have to know the other steps. Just the thing that you can see needs fixing that you feel like you could possibly try. Try that. Start where you are. Your life is important. Your experience can be used for good. And with healing, you're going to have more focus and more energy to do it. If you are not making any progress healing from the effects of a traumatic childhood, it's very likely that whatever you were told about how to do it isn't working for you. It might even be flat out wrong. Now in my work, there's an old way the world sees trauma and how to treat it. And there's an emerging research-based approach. And I wanna talk about that emerging approach and how I've come to understand and work with people who are progressing through what I see as five distinct phases of healing. 
Now I encourage you to just hear me out, learn what they are and ask yourself, what phase are you in right now? Because knowing this can help direct you to healing work that fits, that not only helps you feel happier, but helps you get control over your childhood PTSD symptoms so that you can have a fuller and happier and more meaningful life. You were never meant to be stuck in the hurt that other people caused you. So I just want you to remember, healing is possible. Now, if you know me, you know I teach the specific techniques and principles that I use to heal from my own past trauma. But in this video, I want to show you the big picture, what I've noticed from my own life and from teaching and coaching thousands of people who suffer with PTSD symptoms from childhood. And what I've noticed is that healing tends to flow through these five phases. Okay, so the first phase of healing is to realize what trauma is actually doing to you. Now, obviously everybody's different, but the effects of abuse and neglect in childhood tend to follow very common patterns. They're so common that I think you'll find it comforting to learn that no, a lot of your challenges and mistakes are not, as you may have thought, some kind of personal failure. When you learn the common effects of trauma, and this is something I teach in all my courses, you will find how many of your problems are normal. You can totally let go of all that blame on yourself. You don't have some kind of crazy preference for drama. You're not seeking people out who will hurt you. You're not trying to recreate childhood. <laughs> have you ever been told these things? I, I have been told those things and it always sounded wrong. And it sounded wrong then and it sounds even more wrong from where I sit now because now we know the common symptoms of CPTSD from childhood are normal responses to abnormal circumstances during your developmental years. Yes, there are psychological elements, but at its root, it's a neurological injury that disrupts brain and body systems. And this affects your health. It can cause chronic disease. It can cause learning problems, relationship problems, definitely that, financial problems, depression, anxiety, addiction, and this is a big one that gets overlooked. It can make it impossible to make clear-headed decisions right when you need to make a clear-headed decision. Now, if you haven't heard me say it already, this is what can really drag you into some bad situations, especially via relationships. So there's a lot of wrong information out there. You see it on TV, you see it in movies a lot, where a traumatized person finally just talks about it one time and everything magically gets better. And if only it were that easy, even if you talk about it a lot, it might not get better. That's not what ended up working for me. So of course it looks from the outside like we just aren't seeing that we're traumatized. We're not admitting what's actually at the root of our problems. And it looks like that because our actions don't make sense. We probably from the outside seem deluded and it makes no sense that we would, you know, keep making the same self-sabotaging mistake over and over. To someone who doesn't have CPTSD, it's easy to assume this is some kind of decision or choice we're making. And if someone believes that, they can dress it up with all kinds of reasoning about why that would be. But the telltale sign that an idea or an assessment isn't really the right one in your case is that when you apply it, it doesn't do anything for you. 
the results just aren't there. And results matter. That's how you know. People who have CPTSD have usually tried a lot of different ways to heal, and for too many of them, it just hasn't worked. There might be this tiny puff of belief when you first hear some explanation for your symptoms. You know, it's this, it's caused by that. But when you give that thought a few days and weeks to air out, and knowing this doesn't change anything, well, there it is. Knowing some idea of what's wrong with you, even if it's true, doesn't necessarily fix it. It's not the solution. It might work for other people, like knowing something, but if it doesn't, if you don't end up just improving, then the idea is an idea. It's not a solution. If your failure to respond to common treatments is making you feel ashamed, then internalizing that this is a misunderstanding, it's wrong information for you, that should come as a relief. We now have a much better understanding of what trauma does to people. You're not a bad person. You're not defiant or, you know, refusing help. You're normal. Your symptoms are not your fault. And knowing this is the first crucial phase of healing. The second phase is to understand the root cause of most of your symptoms, and that is something called dysregulation. Now, chronic stress and trauma in childhood can cause brain and nervous system changes that affect every system in the body. Those normally regulated systems become dysregulated, and you'll hear me use that word all the time, dysregulated. There's emotional dysregulation and there's neurological dysregulation, including dysregulation of brain activity from a flowing pattern to a chaotic pattern. And this in turn leads to dysregulation of hormones and chemical signals that govern your immune system, your heart function, your reproductive system, your metabolism, uh, your attention span, your ability to stay calm and present and not melt down emotionally or totally space out at crucial moments. So in this stage of healing, you learn to notice when dysregulation is happening. What are the signs that you have it? And what are the triggers that seem to set it off? Now, recognizing this can initiate this huge wave of growth for the people I coach, just like it did for me. They'll often say, oh my God, that's what I have. That is what throws me off every time. And if you have that, that's what made it almost impossible to stop making those same mistakes. It made it impossible to solve the problems in your life that just seem to hang around and get worse and never better, even though you do everything right. It's the dysregulation. And you know what? You can learn to re-regulate. You can learn to notice when it's happening and take steps to get yourself calm and clear-headed and able to focus again. And it's strange at first, and it'll surprise the heck out of you to find that simple techniques can stop a trigger from turning into an upset, which then turns into a full day or three days of dysregulation, right? Because that's what happens. You have an argument with somebody or somebody criticizes you and it hurts and it can be hard to work or focus for days after that. You're just going through the motions. You're feeling numb. You're feeling kind of buzzy in your hands. Time is just like, what's happening? It's going so fast. So when you know how to re-regulate, you might still get dysregulated sometimes, but you'll notice it sooner and then turn it around quickly and get back to being okay and doing whatever it is you want to be doing. When you're regulated, you're a lot less likely to lose your temper or have an anxiety attack or feel overwhelmed. You're less likely to procrastinate, which is nice, and you have a way out from all that to free yourself. And when you're free, so many things in life become possible.
So I love teaching people about this in my coaching programs because it's one thing to read, you know, <laughs> it's one thing to read about how to re-regulate or watch a video about it, but being in a small group, connecting every week with people who know you, sharing what you're trying, what you're noticing, having people hear you and be happy for you and share their discoveries about what works. You can see the re-regulation in them and sometimes that's what it takes to really believe that it's real and it can happen and it can happen for you. So working with everyone, I get to see this light go on in their eyes like, ah, that's it. We're not failures. We're not stupid. We're dysregulated and this can be healed. So that is the third crucial phase of healing learning to connect with other people. And this is probably the single worst, most painful impact of childhood trauma on your adult life, feeling like an outsider, feeling like you didn't get the memo on how to act, how to belong, or you're good at acting like you're fine, but you never feel like you're safe to be yourself. You feel lonely, even in a crowd. And of course, romantic relationships. They're dreadful. It can get obsessive or it, you can get rejected. It can be non-existent. It can get so hard dealing with people that whether you mean to or not, you avoid them. And it's not supposed to be this way. So I say it again and again, childhood PTSD is an injury to the ability to connect with other people. It's an injury, but healing that injury can be learned. So when you're more regulated, it's easier to connect. And it works the other way too. When you have more connection handled slowly and consciously, it can help you get more regulated. So healing is kind of an upward spiral, not a straight line. You know, you don't first do connection and then you learn dysregulation or vice versa. You do a little of both at the same time. And then you go through cycles and make progress and then the cycle comes around and you heal some more. <laughs> and the fourth crucial phase of healing is all about facing your own self-defeating behaviors. Do you ruin relationships with anger, for example? Are you isolating? Do you have addictions or a problem with food and weight that's hurting your health? These are all trauma related and a lot of traumatized people stay stuck with these problems all their lives. But when you're regulated and connected a little more to people, you can begin to change things that you would like to change. And that is sacred work to keep facing your own mistakes and making day-to-day -day changes in a positive direction. This is where life starts to get much more open, much more happy, and then comes the fifth crucial phase. And that's when you're able to shed your old limited idea of yourself, you know, stuck in resentment or hopelessness, it'll never work or paralysis. I just can't, or trying to please people who are never going to be pleased with anything you do, right? This is the phase where you're able to discover who you really are, the real you and the gifts that you were meant to bring into the world. This is the phase of joy and sharing of healing with other people. You probably have inklings of what your gifts are already, but the burden of CPTSD has been so heavy that it's hard to develop what you're really good at. So in my membership program and in our coaching program, we take people all the way through these phases, all the way to the gifts phase, and this is the greatest pleasure of all is watching each person's power and dignity start to shine brightly as they are able to see it. Not the old identity of someone who's merely hurt, 
but their true identity as people who accomplish great things for the benefit of everyone. And you watch that feeling of life being empty or meaningless just evaporate, like they're waking up from a bad dream. It is like that. The way the world looks through the eyes of, an, of unhealed trauma is a bad dream. And then you come out of it. The most damaging part of having childhood PTSD, and you know, at first you think it's what happened to you when you were small, and yes, that was bad, but the part that really holds you back in present time is the self-defeating behavior, the many behaviors that you're still doing as a result of the wounds that you're still carrying, as a result of the neurological dysregulation and the hurt self-esteem, the problems connecting with people and knowing how the regular world works. You put those all together and self-defeating behaviors come out. And I'm gonna tell you what I mean by that. Which behaviors are common for traumatized people? Like you might recognize a few of them. And then I'm gonna ask you to stay with me all the way to the end of the video because I'm gonna to describe to you what it's like when those self-defeating behaviors have lifted. What's on the other side of them? And it's good. And that's what happens when your trauma is healing. So don't worry that you have to be perfect. Don't worry that you have to be 100% healed. There really is no such thing as that. There's a groove that you get into through having good tools to recognize and handle the emotional and neurological symptoms that come up as we go through the day. And also through having a community of supportive people. And I'm gonna talk in this video about how to find that for yourself. Now, when you have tools and support, your healing can accelerate. Do you need to take some actions to get this accelerated healing going? Yes, you need intentional action. You need courageous action. You can go slowly if that feels better, or you can go faster. And I think for me, the decision to commit myself to my own healing process happened when I recognized my own self-defeating behaviors. That was it. That was a really powerful turning point for me because until that time, I'd focused so heavily on what happened, the abuse that happened, the neglect, the bullying from other kids and siblings and ostracization from groups and adults in my life. Those were traumatizing but I just found I couldn't do anything about what other people had done in the past. And if I could recognize the stuff that I was doing in present time, that was something worth working on because it was something I could change. And to be honest, early in my healing, I really was not clear what I was doing to cause problems. I just knew I was drowning in problems. So I wanna start with a list of self-defeating behaviors that might be helpful for you to go, oh yeah, I do that. And knowing what these are isn't so you can beat yourself up, but as you listen, you might identify one or two that if you healed these, even if you don't know yet how to heal them, it would make a huge difference in your life. So take note of that. And then, not to end on a discouraging note, I'm gonna go through what it looks like when these very problems are healing. And I guarantee you, you will recognize some of these signs of healing in yourself, no matter how far along you are, they're already happening. So we'll get to the signs of healing, but we'll start with the self-defeating behaviors, okay? Here we go. Number one, neglect of body. Now this could be avoidance of medical and dental care or even harming yourself. It could be wearing inappropriate or shabby clothes. It could be having poor hygiene or it could be neglect of, you know, just 
exercise, food that you need, just normal stuff that is hard to put together when you are in active CPTSD symptoms. The second one is blame, and this is the difficulty seeing your own role in problems. It can be like victim thinking, um, you, you can't see how there's any possible way you could have done it differently or maybe next time, and it results in like bitterness, slandering other people. It's a belief that all your problems are the result of a certain person, a certain event, um, a, a certain country, a political party, a group of people. You know, you hear this all the time, you know, it's all because of men or that's a group of people, right? So that would be blame. Number three is black and white thinking. Traumatized people are often drawn to extreme views, groups, authority figures, and belief systems. And a sign of this is if you are constantly being outraged at someone in your life, at the news, that kind of thing, like you're always like at nine, you know, Argh! black and white thinking costs you the freedom to disagree or step back from conflicts with other people. You end up dominating other people, slandering them, cutting off contact with friends, family, people outside your group where there really was hope. But because you are in black and white thinking, there is nothing that can ever be worked out. Number four is numbing with substances. And traumatized people aren't the only ones who do this, but we have a statistically high rate of substance abuse and addiction. Now you may be trying to relieve stress with alcohol or drugs, or maybe taking more or different medication than prescribed. That is a self-defeating behavior. Number five is doing this with food, eating addictively, binging on food, especially carbohydrates, not eating enough, or obsessing on how you look, or uh, how much you weigh, or what you're gonna eat next, or the correct way of eating. And that has a name, by the way, the obsession with correct way of eating is called orthorexia. It's on the rise. Number six is addictive use of media and entertainment. <laughs> and this is when we use TV, social media, internet, and games enough to interfere with sleep and meals and our daily routine or family responsibilities or work or school or their ability to make a living. And by screens, I also mean these things, right? Oh my gosh. It's Walk around, walk around a public place and just see how many people are looking at their phone. I, I've noticed it's maybe about 50% at any given time. Weird, huh? <laughs> Number seven is dishonesty. And this includes exaggerating, hiding important personal truths or preferences about yourself from other people, lying, stealing, um, cheating, tax evasion, illegal activity. All right. Eight is work problems. And this, this could be very broad. This would be if you have, let's say, a chronic adversarial relationship with your boss or your coworkers, or if you chronically stay in unfulfilling work. I mean, there's so many problems you could have at work. It's part of, you know, it's definitely part of a self-defeating behavior. If you're under earning, if you're neglecting a healthy need for learning and skill development, if you have unusually long or frequent periods of unemployment, or maybe you have a pattern of suing your employer or thinking about suing them or getting sued by them. This could be a trauma-driven pattern. Okay, number nine is irritability. And things like frequent arguments, falling out with friends, neighbors, partners, family members, um, ranting, flying into a rage, road rage, mistreating people, taking revenge, or actually committing violence. Number 10 is 
an attraction to troubled partners and friends. And this is so common for people neglected and abused in childhood. What this looks like is being repeatedly drawn into relationships that turn out to be abusive or controlling or damaging to the other relationships in your life or to, to your family or to your finances. And this attraction to troubled people may also be in play if you find yourself claiming that everybody in my life is abusive or everybody in my life is, nar is a narcissist, for example, but you stay with them and rationalize why that's necessary, that would be a self-defeating behavior. 11 is being in an unfulfilling romantic life. Now, maybe you've had no dating relationships or you've stayed in a bad relationship too long or you've created or stayed in a loveless partnership. That would be one, a self-defeating behavior. But another one could be called abuse of sexuality. And this includes using an overly sexualized appearance or conduct to the point that you lose your dignity or you get into situations you never wanted to be in and your emotional security and your ability to be real around sex and relationship dynamics starts to get like damaged. It includes doing things that you don't wanna do or that make you feel ashamed. And people with childhood PTSD have a higher than average rate of, you know, for example, unwanted pregnancy and a higher than average rate of compulsive behaviors around sex. So that's definitely a part of trauma. Um, the next one is an addictive use of fantasy. And this could be around your career success or more commonly around relationships. And it includes fleeing reality. When things are tough, you know, whoo, you just go right out into the fantasy, not really being here to solve problems or listen or talk things out, not being in touch with reality. Fantasy can lead to a failure to take reasonable action and to have huge unrealistic expectations and make huge unrealistic promises. You inflate the importance of relationships and events and personal attributes and prospects. At the extreme, it can become obsession. It can become stalking. And it can lead to a neglect of your health, your work, and your family obligations. Number 14 is the avoidance of people, responsibility, and participation. Now, this includes isolating, becoming what's called socially anorectic or avoidant or covert avoidance, where you you know, technically participate in things or accept invitations, but when you're there, you don't connect. Everybody's at arm's length. Some people do this as individuals, but some people do it as a couple or as a family or as a group, or like a cult is an example of this, where there's a disconnection and avoidance of connection with the outside community. 15 is debting. And this means living beyond your ability to pay for things like your home, your car, the things you do for fun. As it gets worse, you might get into gambling, um, your debt growing and growing, and problems like foreclosure, bankruptcy, homelessness. And for traumatized people, debting often goes hand in hand with just kind of a vagueness about, you know, what would be the path to solvency? What is the amount that they spend? Vagueness. So 16 is repeating traumatic patterns. Maybe you have a seeming inability to detect trouble or step back when trouble shows up in your life, or you relapse into a traumatized state again and again and again, triggering deepening of depression, rage, collapse, reversion to old behaviors. And you can see how, you know, a traumatized person can't always help this happening, but I'm just saying it is a behavior. And if it's happening, it is holding you down. The reassuring thing is that these are all common and normal symptoms in people who were traumatized as kids. And if you have these behaviors, you're normal. 
And unfortunately, now that we're grown, no one is coming to save us. It doesn't matter how accurately you can figure out why these behaviors took root in you. What matters is that you unroot them. Some of it is hard, some is easy. Some takes time, but some can change very quickly. And you'll find that if you can change one thing, then that creates this little space where another thing can change, and then another, and then another. And that is how healing happens, with tools and support to take one good action after another. What tools can you use? Well, maybe you have some already, 12-step programs, therapy, my programs. You can click on the links below my videos, all of them. You can find the programs, including my free course, The Daily Practice, and the free calls that go with that. You can always join me in that. At the end of this video, I'll remind you to click on that stuff. But the most important thing I want to share with you is the vision of what it can be like when these behaviors heal. Now, I didn't think I could possibly heal from my childhood PTSD, but now I'm here to tell you how I did it. And in this video, what it feels like, what changes when that healing happens. How will you know? Are you ready? All right. These are the signs that your trauma wounds are healing. Number one, when your trauma is healing, you will no longer tend to see things in black and white terms, people, yourself, and situations. You will no longer hold them up as all good or put them down as all bad. You'll begin to appreciate the complexity of things and the way that people can have faults, but they can be decent people anyway. You'll have less outrage and more curiosity. You'll have less impatience and more persistence. You'll lose the attraction to extreme views and authority figures, and you'll gain the ability to interact with a variety of people. Relationships where one person dominates the other one, they'll just get more equal or they'll fade away. It will be less necessary to cut people out of your life. Number two is you'll have a natural desire to care for your body, in part because you're, you're going to have less drama in your life and you'll have more energy to do things like take a walk, floss your teeth, shop for clothes that look good on you. <laughs> I still find that hard, actually. I don't like shopping. But you will feel a little better. Now, when you find yourself feeling too schlumpy to leave the house or too tired from watching TV until one o'clock in the morning that you feel like, ah, I can't do anything, it'll just come to feel like that pattern is not worth it anymore. You will want the things that having energy brings. One little step after another will lead to more clarity, more enthusiasm for your life, and a desire to do even more good things for yourself. Number three is you will naturally crave healthier food. And being at the effect of past trauma can lead to all kinds of food problems, um, obesity, malnutrition, eating disorders, and it can lead to a tendency to deal with stress by binging on carbs and sugar. Oh, they feel so relaxing at first, right? But they're dysregulating in the long run. They don't feel good. They're draining. And as you heal, you won't want that feeling. Number four, you'll lose that compulsive desire to binge on screens, including TV and video games and just plain looking at your phone all the time. If your screen time has interfered with you know, your sleep, your meals, your work, your ability to be present with your loved ones, then the release from addictive behavior will be life-changing for you. Moderation actually feels kind of good after a while. Number five is you're not going to be tempted anymore to fake the truth. Things like exaggerating, hiding important information about yourself, or lying about things. It's not going to be necessary. You won't need to, or because you're not going to feel ashamed of yourself. You're not going to have so much to hide. 
Eventually, you'll have nothing to hide. It's all worked out. Being honestly yourself will feel good. And when you're not being real, you'll start to have real discomfort. You'll actually want the truth to filter through your life. And if there's anyone still in your life who can't handle who you really are, eh, you'll feel more acceptance that they might just no longer belong in your life. The people who leave your life will leave a nice little spot where other people who love and accept you can come in and be your friend. Number six is your work life will start to go better and you won't stay stuck in unfulfilling work. You'll change your relationship to your current job or you will get a new one. You'll have the power to do that. And if a lack of work has been your problem, all the good changes that are happening in the rest of your life are going to make it easier to get work and to earn money that supports you and the people who count on you. You're going to know how to steer clear of exploitative or abusive employers. That won't just keep happening over and over again for mysterious reasons. You'll lose your appetite to be in conflict with people on the job, and you're going to get the ability to show up, to do good work, to be an encourager of your coworkers, to be, you know, to enjoy that cooperation and that teamwork, and then also to advocate for yourself and your own ideas and getting credit when it's appropriate. Number seven is, You'll lose interest in assigning blame to yourself or other people for problems and focus instead on just finding good solutions. You're going to feel less angry. You're not going to be so irritable. And when something is your fault, it'll be so easy to just own it and say, ah, I'm sorry. And when someone else owes you an apology but doesn't give it to you, which is most of the time, don't dwell on it. You won't. There's no need. It doesn't affect you so much anymore. Blame-filled Talking, you know, gossip, news, social media posts, it will just start to feel bad. It puts a bad taste in your mouth. People in your life may not know why, but they'll feel better about themselves when they're around you. Hmm. Number eight is any attraction you once had to unavailable partners and troubled friends will just let go of you. You'll be released. So much life damage is done by these self-defeating behaviors, connecting and bonding with and staying with people who are trouble. Avoiding any kind of intimacy with people at all, even though it's what you long for, or abusing intimacy by acting out sexually, which is still a way of having no intimacy, by the way. These are also part of CPTSD that can take persistence to change. But when you've made real progress in the other areas, it will be easier to stop re-traumatizing yourself in these ways. The spell gets broken. It is like that, right? It's like being under a spell. Everything seems so real and then poof, you see. You see the truth. So then what's left is peace. Peace when you're single and the possibility of harmony and real love when you do meet someone. Number nine is you will start to prefer reality to fantasy and the tendency to check out by spending too much time in limerent, obsessive fantasy relationships or fantastical business success ideas is really common with people in the middle of trauma. But in the end, that fantasy level, that, that much fantasy, it's just another way to avoid real problems and the actions that need to be taken. When you're healing, it feels less necessary to go into fantasy. And when you catch yourself daydreaming, you can come back to the place where true connection and pursuit of your dreams is really possible, which is right here, right now. Number 10 is your material well-being will improve. Now, most people in the world, including most happy people, live good lives without being rich and famous. And, you know, most of the world lives on very little money at all. 
Financial hardship can fall on anyone, but when you're free of trauma, it's more possible to earn a steady income, to stay safe in that way, to let go of get-rich-quick schemes, and to live within your means. That takes a high level of consciousness, doesn't it? You can release the fear of the past when, if you're like many of us, you may have been just a few hundred dollars away from homelessness too many days of the year. I've been there. It all gets better when you're healing. A little here, a little there. You, you could sleep at night. You can handle the hard days when they happen. You can hold your head up even though you make mistakes because you're not sabotaging yourself in ways that make you ashamed anymore. This is what healing feels like when you're not re-traumatized all the time. So don't get discouraged. There are things you can do to start your healing right now. I've got a full set of courses and programs linked in the description section below on, or on my website at crappychildhoodfairy.com. Thank you so much for listening. If you love my content, think about joining my membership program. You can find out more information about that and all my courses and coaching programs at crappychildhoodfairy.com. Remember, healing is possible. People with childhood PTSD can have a wonderful life. Sometimes we just need a few workarounds. I'll see you next time.